Okay, so here we are in Exodus 12 this week, guys, and um, today you might notice we, if you've looked at these tables out the front, we're going to celebrate communion. So we're going to take bread and we're going to take juice at the end of this message. And, um, the, pa- and the reason why we're going to do it this week is it's a good week to do it because of the passage we're looking at. Um, God's people, God's New Testament people, you know, the people of Jesus, are, we're given the instruction to share this little mini meal and um, we're not told exactly how often we're meant to do it, but we're told to celebrate this mini meal. And what we're going to look at tonight is how this meal of communion or the Lord's Supper or whatever you want to call it, actually finds its roots and its foundations in another ancient meal um, that God's Old Testament people were instructed to eat and celebrate. And that meal is the meal of the Passover. And the first time the meal of the Passover was ever eaten and the festival celebrated was during the 10th plague on Egypt, which is where we're up to this week. Last week we looked at the first nine plagues and then this week you get to the 10th plague and the passage slows right down and it spends more time because it's really significant and it's really heavy and there's something that you are really meant to catch. Whenever the Bible slows down and goes painstakingly slow and repeats itself, it's because there's something you're meant to get there. And so we're going to make sure we get the concept that's right at the heart of this Passover meal. Let's make sure we don't miss that. It happens during the final plague, which is the worst of all, and it's a plague that targets the firstborn males in every family in Egypt. Well, not every family just the family of the Egyptians. God's people are protected from this plague like they're protected from some of the other plagues. It's, it's, it's the firstborn male that's affected and it's not just sickness that comes upon the firstborn male in every family, it's death. So I'm not sure whether you've been reflecting on this during the week anyway in the passage. Um, it's heavy. We're not there yet, Manny. You're just ready to go, aren't you? All right, just hang in there, all right? I'll notice people looking. Is it the bird? <laughs> um, it's heavy graphic content in a sense. It depends how graphic your mind goes as you read the scriptures. But what we're looking at here is the mighty outstretched arm of God's judgment, his hand of righteous punishment upon those who insist on rebelling and rejecting him. It's his righteous judgment. But it is horrific. If you can, though, if you can face the horror of the reality of this final plague, you may well then get to catch a glimpse of the true horror of something else. That's the horror of sin. That's what we're meant to catch. And sin's judgeworthiness. And if you can do that hard work catch the horror of sin in humanity and even in yourself, then you can actually come to know the sweet relief and celebration of being someone who is in Christ and knowing that this judgment that we deserve has passed over us. Yeah? A big part of celebrating your salvation is to know the relief that you don't get what you actually deserve. And this is an opportunity for us to reflect on that. There are some passages in Scripture that really kind of take us to focusing on um, of what we get when we're saved. 
You know, when you're saved, you get saved for a whole new life. You get saved for blessing of being in Christ. And we looked at this a few weeks ago. When you're saved, you're saved for things, but you're also saved from things, yeah? This passage actually does help us focus on what you're saved from. And it's really important to be clear and realistic and honest and admitting what you're saved from. That's going to help you understand and celebrate your salvation. So the plagues. This final plague, which is the worst of all of them, is the plague that finally gets Pharaoh to let God's people go. Yep. After this one, he's crushed and he says, get out of here. He kind of sends them out. And God's people actually get to go and they get to plunder Egypt on the way. And so they're told to do that, to ask their Egyptian neighbours if they can have some gold and silver and all of their neighbours are predisposed to them because God's helped that happen. And so God's people actually leave Egypt with all, with a huge amount of riches and blessing. And we're going to get to more of that next week. We're going to look at the thing that kind of causes Pharaoh to say, okay. Um, let's look at the, um, the final plague. Um, And there's a few places we can go to it, but let's go to chapter 12 and we'll look at verses 12 to 13. Let's read those ones. It's actually repeated a number of times through chapter 12. It says, here's what's going to happen and then it describes what happens. So look at verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt I am the Lord. Uh, Now, have a look at, um, skip to verse 29, which actually just describes it happening. At midnight, the Lord struck down the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoners, who sat in dungeons, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all of Egypt got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. This is heavy. The Lord goes through Egypt, killing the firstborn male in each household. It's described in verse 23 as the destroyer or the angel of death, but it is the Lord in his presence doing this. It's heavy. It's not just people, it's also animals. Um, But Israel is going to be spared. You can come back to verse 13 and look at this. The Lord, sorry, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So, you know, when, when it's mentioned, the wailing here, that just makes sense. It's not a household where there isn't death. Can you imagine it? It's dreadful. Um, it might even be something you struggle to understand how God could do this. You might find it hard to appreciate that people are worthy of this kind of judgment. I wonder whether you're the firstborn male in your household. And if you are, you would be the one who's taken down. But hang in there with me. If we can understand the horror of the judgment, you might be able to catch a glimpse of the horror of the reality of sin and its judge worthiness. Now just pause for a minute. Why the firstborn male in each household? This was God bringing judgment on Egypt in the ancient world in the way that would hit them the hardest. 
You see, your firstborn male in the ancient world was the heir to the household, heir to the throne or heir to the inheritance of every household. So when you strike at the firstborn male, you strike right at the centre of the hope that that family has for the future. It's heavy. It hits them right where it hurts. Um, but, but there's another thing that's going on behind here, and this is the passage, Manny, if you can pop it up, back in Exodus chapter 4. You might have caught this on the way through. Um, this, this is what God says. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And, and, and I told you, let my people go so they may worship me, but you refuse to let them go, so I will kill your firstborn son. God's taking the firstborn sons of his enemies who are rebelling against him, because they have been enslaving his firstborn son. That is how God considers his people, Israel, as his firstborn son. The ones who are actually the heir to the inheritance of God. And I'm not sure if, you, if you've spent time appreciating the way God views his people. Because I think it's easy for us to see the reality of God's people. If you've been in church for, you know, even just for a few moments or a few years, you'll have come across pain and you'll come across hardship and you'll become aware of dysfunction, even in a young new church like Anchor. Yeah, we've got plenty of it. Don't worry about it. And it's good to have you here with us so there can be even more. All right. God loves his people and he appreciates his people at a depth that's worth reflecting on, particularly when you're having a hard time appreciating the people of God and wanting to serve and love the people of God. These people, God's people, are his firstborn. They're the ones he loves. They're the ones his eyes are on. And the ones they are the ones who, in and through, he's going to bring about all his plans and purposes for the whole universe. God's people are precious to him let them be precious to you. There's two things I think we see about the Lord when just on a first observation, when you hear about a plague like this that God pours out. First thing is this, it's pretty obvious. The Lord is, so God is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of life and death. He can give life and he can take it away. Yep. He can multiply a people group and he can wipe out and destroy a people group. And he can easily snuff out your life because he gave it to you in the first place. And he will take your life when he decides the time is up. And no matter who you are, it doesn't matter if you're powerful in society, it doesn't matter if you're rich, it doesn't matter if you've got all the insurance in the world, you are vulnerable before the almighty God who gave you life and can take it away. There are no untouchables here on the earth that God cannot get to. Everybody faces death and everybody faces the God who gave them life in the end. It's humbling, but we need to acknowledge our God is the Lord of life and death. The second thing I want to notice here is that God actually makes a distinction between the peoples of the earth and his people, which is a little bit not very politically correct these days. We want to embrace inclusiveness. We don't want there to be any types of segregation. We, and, and, and much of that is actually part of the Christian ethic to actually love and appreciate and respect people of all races and groups. But, but God's very clear that he's segregating a particular people out there. In fact, he uses that language. Look at verses 7. Um, Oh, that's not it, is it? 
The Lord makes a distinction. Where am I looking? Is that my wife? 11, chapter 11. Verse 7. Yeah, that's it. Thanks, Dale. <laughs> the equipper, the, the empowerer. Um, yeah, verse 7. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. It can be the case that Christians, because we're part of our society, we can fall into the trap of not wanting to exclude anybody. And, and that's kind of helpful. So we, 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 can, we can not want to use us and them type of language because we want to encourage everyone to say, look, all the people, all the humanity are children of God. And there's some truth in that because all of humanity actually have, are made in the image of God and have the life of God running through their veins. But God makes distinction between all of humanity and those who belong to him, the ones that are his. And in this plague, you see it really distinctly. God distinguishes his people from the rest of the world. Now, why does he do that? Why does God actually pull his people out? And why is he favourably disposed towards one people group? Is it that Israel are better people? Is it that God's people right through the Bible have just been more honest and been more wholesome and been more godly? It's not that. If you've read the Bible, you know it's not the case. God's people are wretches. God's people, you know, here in Exodus, you see them grumbling against God. Very quickly, you see them turn on him, even though he rescues them from Egypt. God, God's people have got a track record of showing that they're just as wicked and sinful as any other person walking the earth. So why is God favourably disposed towards his people group? Fundamentally, because he decides he's going to be. He decides he's going to pour out his mercy and grace, particularly on a set of people. Yeah? These are going to be the ones that belong to him. And I actually think when we see God's wrath pass over Israel here at the Passover, the first thing you want to acknowledge is it's not because they're better. It's not because they're wicked like the rest of humanity. It's because God decides to save them through sacrifice. God decides his wrath gets poured out on someone else instead of them. And that's what you want to notice in Passover. So how does the judgment pass over God's people? Well, God gives them a meal to celebrate and it involves a slaughter of an animal and a collecting of blood and painting blood on a doorway. So if you're a little bit kind of feeling a little bit weak in the tummy today, you might want to put your earplugs in or something. But there's, there's the slaughtering of animals and the painting of blood and it's graphic, but it's symbolic. God says, when I see the blood on your doorways, I will pass over you. It's not because they're any more, any, any, it's not because they're good and they've never made mistakes. It's because God sees the blood symbolic and he passes over. You can see that actual language there in chapter 12, verse 13. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. So where does the blood come from? Let's look at the meal that God calls them to celebrate in the midst of this final plague. As I said, it's described twice there in chapter 12. Um, let's pick it up there in verse 21. Have a look at it there with me. Um, Moses summoned all of the elders of Israel and he said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Now you get the detail a little bit earlier back in verses five that the Passover lamb is a very particular selection of an animal. And the Passover lamb needs to be male. He needs to be one year old 
and he needs to be free of any type of blemish. So you're not picking the dodgy one out of your flock. You're picking the perfect one. You're picking the one that looks great and is great and it's got no deformities, a blemish-free lamb. And when they slaughter the lamb, they've got to be very careful not to break any of its bones. They need to collect the blood and then they need to roast the animal whole. You see that there in verse eight. We read it in the Bible passage. Roast it whole on a barbecue, eat the lot of it. It sounds like it's not just all hard work, is it? Like this sounds like if you're a meat eater and you like lamb and you like barbecued lamb, this sounds like a kind of something that you wouldn't mind being involved in. And you've got to make sure you eat it all because we're not quitters, all right? We finish what we start. So God's people are eating and they've got to finish the lot of it. And, and the, other, the other cool little detail you get there in verse 8 is that while they're eating, they've got to be standing up. Now, this is my kind of meal, all right? You get to stand up, you've got to tuck your shirt into your belt, you've got to have your staff in one hand and you've got to eat this lamb because you've got to be ready to run. You've got to eat in haste. So you've only got one hand to eat, right? No knives and forks, right? You're just grabbing it with your hands or you're grabbing it with a single utensil. You're just picking up a big thing and you're ripping it like it sounds good doesn't it Johnny you like it don't you all right so I get a little bit excited about eating meat probably too excited um but so th- th- there's a little bit of celebrating and, and actually as this as this Passover meal goes on through the years it turns into oh, this instruction here it's a week-long celebration and this meal is the culmination of that week-long celebration of the unleavened bread um, but it's meant to be something that's enjoyed. There's provision here, but they're ready to go. Look at, um, look at verse 22. It says, Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and paint some of the blood on the top and the sides of your door frame. None of you shall go out of the door while the ha- to the house in the morning. So paint the blood on the door frame of your house. Stay inside. Don't go outside. Real specific instructions. You want to obey these instructions if you want the wrath of God to pass over you. They need to follow them. Verse 23, when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides and he'll pass over. He will not permit the destroyer to enter in. Now, let me ask you a question. Did the Lord need to see the blood to know who his people were because he couldn't? figure it out otherwise no God is all knowing and sovereign he didn't need to see the blood to know who his people were so why the blood why does God need to see the blood well it's actually more about Israel and their participation in this it's Israel expressing trust and faith in a God who's able to save This is about a sign for Israel. And that's the exact language that gets used. Look at verse 13. I'm kind of flicking between these two accounts. Verse 13, chapter 12. Um, The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And he's talking to Israel there. It's a sign for Israel. So they're there to paint the blood to participate and be involved in their salvation in some fashion or at least express a demonstration or some evidence that they're trusting that God is going to pass over them, that God is able to not pour out wrath that they deserve on them. They trust that God is going to save them. And so God lets them graciously be involved And it's tactile, isn't it? And this is where God is gracious to us. He speaks to us and he gives us things we can touch and feel and taste and take into ourselves. We're going to share communion in a little bit. And that's the idea of it. 
Taste your salvation. Understand how God saved you. God's gracious to us in this way. And he wants, particularly in this Passover meal, he wants them to understand the heaviness of what they've escaped. The point of the blood is that something has already been slaughtered so you don't have to be. The lamb got it so we don't have to get it. Someone's got to die. Something's got to die. Because that's a righteous God's judgment on sinful humanity. So in this case, the lamb gets it. Now, of course, if you've been in these things for years, you know that the blood of bulls and goats doesn't actually take away the sin of humans. So it's symbolic. This is the first time the symbol of sacrifice and blood is being used to point forward to the moment when the real sacrifice would be given that would cover the sin of God's people, future, present and past, reaching right back into this moment. Yeah? That we would be people, that God's people would be people who know someone died or something died in our place. They're meant to catch this in the moment. Now, of course, this turns into, as I mentioned, a week-long festival as the years tick by. It's meant to be a lasting ordinance that they will all remember. Read from verse 24 so you can catch a sense of how all the generations are meant to keep remembering this, how judgment can pass over and what it takes. Verse 24, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? And I love this little reference that you get often in scripture. When the kids ask mum and dad, what is this all about? You know, it's just a beautiful little dynamic where, where are kids being taught primarily about God and the wisdom of God? They're going to ask questions in the home. They're going to come to their mum and their dad and they're going to go, what is this all about? This is strange. This is weird. Can you explain it to me? And mums and dads, there is your little moment. And it won't be in the moment that you planned. It'll be in the car when you're on a rush trying to get somewhere else or whatever. But when these moments come, this is your moment to teach your kids the gospel now no parent feels strong at that I actually feel like I feel like it's way easier to teach adults in other contexts than to teach in my own home so if you feel a bit pathetic at it don't worry I do as well everyone does but these are the moments where you get to teach your children about the grace of God when they come and they ask questions it's one of the great graces of being a parent that you get this moment to speak into their lives don't hold back let them know why you're doing it. And if your only answer to why you're doing what you're doing as a Christian is, I don't know, it's just kind of this thing I've always done, then what's going to be exposed in your life is just this religious ceremony that you've done and you don't know why. And the kid's going to go, well, that sounds pretty dumb. I don't really want to do a religious ceremony if you don't know why. And kids will see straight through parents to whether it's real for them and they get it and there's something being celebrated in the heart. Wouldn't that be awesome if this emerging generation that the Lord is bringing up among us here would catch the gospel clearly and strongly from the hearts of their parents and the voices of their parents? 
Now, there's no guarantee it's going to work, is there? But these are the moments that we get to step towards. And when, when the kid asks the question, I don't know where that took you in your mind. Some of you just thought about your own parents. Some of you thought about your own parenting. Some of you just went places where I could see in your faces there was pain because the households are full of pain. And raising kids in households is hard. But it's what we're given, an opportunity. God opens hearts. He brings forgiveness. We have this opportunity in our homes. What does this ceremony mean to you? The kid will ask. Then tell them, oh, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of Israel in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Oh, we, we do this meal to remember this moment where God's judgment passed over us and we didn't cop it. We were rescued, we were saved. Which is to basically say, you know why we do all that we do as Christians, kids? It's because God has been gracious to me. He's loved me. He's saved me. This is what we get to communicate. Now, there's the Passover. What about us today? How does the Passover kind of land on us today? There are some Christians who like to celebrate the Passover each Easter and that's fine. We've done a version of it in our house one time when we had a friend who's Jewish come along and help us do it. But there's a sense in which the Passover as a meal itself is not a law that's placed upon Christians to celebrate once a year because Jesus replaced it. Jesus fulfilled it and gave us a new meal. So you can celebrate the Passover if you want. Make sure you bring Jesus into it somehow, which is not that hard to do. But make sure that the new meal is the one we're focused on. And, and, and behind all that, really, the question I want to ask you today is, um, how do you perceive of your salvation? If you consider yourself someone to have received the grace of Jesus, and some of you haven't yet because you're new and you're trying to figure it all out, you, you want to catch this, but how do you perceive of your salvation? How do you celebrate it and understand your salvation? Because like I mentioned before, it can be the case that the majority of the, what you think about your salvation is what you're saved for which is not the end of the world. You're focused on the blessing that Jesus brings and the life that he's got for you and the eternity and all that, but without really ever getting your heads around what you're saved from. Yep. And, and, and that's because often the, easy, the easiest way to preach the gospel and communicate it is to talk about all the good things because people want good things. People don't want to hear about actually how wretched they are in the heart and what had to happen to God that, he, that we could be saved. But what we want to do is we want to do both. We want to have a good, clear understanding of what we've been saved from and a good, clear understanding of what we've been saved for. Judgment, anger, God's righteous punishment that you deserve, that I deserve because of my rebellion, my rejection, because of humanity's sin passes over me and is poured out on Jesus. That's at the very heart of what saves you. God's judgment has passed over. And not just evaporated into the air, it's passed over, the judgment you deserve, it's passed over you, and it's landed on God's perfect son, which is the Greek word propitiation. I'm not sure if you've heard that word before, but the word, you don't, it doesn't matter if you don't remember it, the word propitiation is the concept of Jesus, the Son, absorbing the wrath of the Father in our place. 
You know, Jesus propitiates God's wrath that we deserve. You don't worry about the word if you don't remember it, but God's wrath passes over and it lands on someone. It lands on Jesus. Jesus saves us in this way by taking what we deserve for our sin. And in this way, Jesus becomes the new Passover lamb. And have you ever noticed the language of lamb in Scripture? Have you ever noticed how Jesus is described as the lamb? I've got a few passages for you here. One of them is the first one in the Old Testament. You've got Isaiah 53 there, Manny. Look at him. He just nodded at me. So here's the, here's the prophet Isaiah announcing that when the Messiah comes, he is going to be the one who is the suffering servant who ultimately is led like a lamb to the slaughter. So as Jesus goes to the cross willingly and has his blood shed there, he's like the lamb. He's the new lamb though. He's the lamb that all the old lambs in the old Passover meal was pointing towards because they're just animals. And this is a person, a human, the perfect son of God who stands in our place. And he's led like a lamb to the slaughter. John the Baptist noticed it. And in John's, the disciples' gospel, um, John the Baptist spots him. Um, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Have you noticed that in John the Baptist's ministry? He spots Jesus. Before he baptises him, he's like, look, there's the lamb. The lamb that's come to take away the sin of the world. Can you see what's central to Jesus' ministry? Can you see what's central to our salvation? It's Jesus, the lamb, his blood shed so that the wrath passes over us. The apostle Paul affirmed it as well. Have you noticed it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Get rid of the old yeast. I mean, that's kind of harking back into this Passover ceremony where they were meant to eat bread without yeast all week long. Um, but he's spiritualizing or using them as symbols for the new Christian life here. And he says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch. That's beautiful language, isn't it? How have you gone this week being a new unleavened batch? Does that make any sense to you at all? That's the life we live. How good is it? An unleavened batch. That's what you are, a big batch of unleavened. That's what you really are, people, super unleavened, <laughs> eating in haste. Because, because when you leave in Egypt, you don't have time to put the yeast in the bread. You just got to run with a big sack of dough on your shoulder. That's what they were told to do. But look at this, sorry. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, in the original Greek, it just says for Christ, the lamb. Um, but the, the really clear concept that you're meant to have in mind here is Passover lamb. So I think it's okay to put that word before it. Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Uh, the Apostle Peter nails it as well in one of his letters. Are you with me here? Am I putting you to sleep or are you all right? Look at what Peter says. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. You've been redeemed, people, from an empty life. But here's how you've been redeemed. Verse 19, you've been redeemed, not with that, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
a lamb without blemish or defect. That's why the lamb needed to be without blemish, to symbolise the perfect son of God, the sinless representative for you and I, who would cop it so you don't have to. Now, there's lots more I can't help but to think about Revelation. In Revelation 5 and 6, you haven't got that, have you, many? You could probably find it for me quick, couldn't you? But, you know, with that vision of heaven, don't worry about it, it's okay, mate. The vision of heaven, God is on the throne and also who is on the throne there in that vision in chapter 5 or 6, I think it is? A lamb looking as though it had been slain. That's the symbol of Jesus, the son there, sitting, enthroned, ruling over all creation. The one who saves by being slain himself. Your salvation has come because God has passed over. The wrath you deserve has skipped over the top of your head and not just evaporated, it's landed and it's landed on Jesus. Your salvation has come at a cost. Jesus is our lamb. And so Jesus is the one who completes the Passover, he fulfills the Passover and he replaces the Passover. And that's really clear on the night before Jesus goes to the cross. And if you read particularly synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, the timing is really clear here. On the night before Jesus goes to the cross, he gathers his disciples together to do what all the Jews were doing in Jerusalem, which was to celebrate the Passover meal. You can see it particularly in Matthew chapter 26. And I think we've got that passage there, haven't we, Manny? Good on you, mate. Just prior to this, it's made really explicit that this is the Passover meal that Jesus is celebrating with his 12 disciples. Um, but look at what he does in the midst of the Passover meal. He, he changes it. He kind of messes with it. And he messes with it because of what he's about to do on the cross. Look, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You can just leave that up there. Can you see what Jesus is doing? In the midst of the Passover meal, he's talking about himself. He starts talking about his own body. He starts talking about his own blood that's about to be shed the very next day because he's fully aware that he has come to be the new Passover lamb, the real deal Passover lamb, the lamb who by being slaughtered and having his blood shed actually takes away sin, not just a symbol of it, but he's the real deal. Can you see what's happened here through history? Can you see what Jesus came to be? Can you see what it took for you to be saved? And if you're not saved yet, if you haven't come to put your trust in Jesus, this is what you're being called to do. You're being called to come and put your trust in the one who took what you deserve and died in your place so that the wrath doesn't have to land on you. It passes over. What a beautiful Passover. And in doing that, Jesus gives us something new to eat. So this is the mini meal we celebrate now. We take bread and we think about his body, the, the new Passover lamb's body that was given. 
And we drink, we've just got some juice tonight, it's grape juice, um, but, but we drink this juice as a symbol of his blood. And here's the thing with communion, the opportunity we get. You, you hold it in your hand, you look at it with your eyes, you take it into your body, and you get the chance to reflect with all of your senses on what it took to save you. We actually get to take into our bodies symbols of, of how the Passover ever happened, how, how the wrath of God does not land on you. That's the point. Now, this is not Jesus' body, actually. It's just a symbol of. It's not his blood, actually. It's just a symbol of. So you don't need to freak out about that. But this is the ceremony. This is the meal that helps us get to the very heart of what we believe and remember it. So tonight, as we share this meal, um, do everything you can in your head and your spirit and your body to actually take into yourself a remembrance of what it took to have the wrath of God that you deserve pass over and not land on you. And this is how we get to celebrate our salvation. Now, it's not the only way. We celebrate our salvation in the gospel week in, week out as we open up the scriptures and we sing about it and we pray about it. But this is something we get to share tonight. So friends, digest the truth of Jesus. Take into yourself symbols of the real deal new Passover lamb the one that was slaughtered so that the wrath of God would pass over you. If you're very new to this, um, this is not something you have to do. You're welcome to join us if you like. But if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you don't understand what this is about, feel free to just watch and hang in there. You you can join us if you want, but you don't have to either. But if you've come to put your trust in Jesus, take this into yourself tonight. Celebrate and remember the work of Jesus tonight and... um, and let's be grateful that, that God's wrath does not land on us. And when I say us, I don't mean just because you've walked through the doors of a church. I say us meaning those who have squarely put your trust in Jesus. And if you're yet to do that, tonight might be a night where you think, I want to make sure I've done that. And you might want to pray tonight to give yourself properly to Jesus. You might need some help praying, in which case you might ask someone who came with you or someone around you who looks like they might know how to do that kind of a thing. You're welcome to do that. And we want to do business with God every week as we gather. And this is the way we get to celebrate tonight. So I'm going to pray a prayer. Muse is going to come back up and then I'll direct us about how we're going to take the, the bread and the juice together. Does that sound good? All right, let me pray. Father God, we... We read about this final plague and it's horrific. Lord, we need the grace of your spirit to direct us to see the horror of our sin and its judgeworthiness. Please, would, would you do that miracle in our lives over and over again so that we can appreciate how your judgment has passed over? And, and we, can be, we can be broken in our hearts to see that it landed on your son Jesus, but it was the only way. And we can go through life day in, day out, remembering what it took and celebrating your grace to us. Please, Lord, tonight as we eat and drink, would you do that work in our hearts? 
Thank you that we get to participate. We get to, you, we get to join in this meal to help us understand and remember our salvation. Lord, would you keep doing a work in us that only you can do. Amen. Amen.